Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, November 9th. So many takeaways from this weekend's action across the tennis world. Of course, we had countless ATP challengers, the ITA National Fall Championships, but perhaps the highlight of them all, the two things I want to focus most on here on today's show, Novak Djokovic and Stefan Kozlov do it again for the world number one. He earns his sixth Paris Masters title, 37th Masters 1000 title of his career. As such, he clinches the year-end number one ranking for the seventh time in his career. The most in ATP Tour history feels like every match Djokovic plays at this point. He's breaking some sort of record, of course, on today's show. I want to talk about what allowed Djokovic to earn a thrilling three-set victory over Daniil Medvedev in the finals. It was honestly pretty impressive in his three-set semifinal win over Hubi Hercats as well. And of course, I want to talk about all of the records he set with his title this past weekend. But of course, as many of you listeners know, perhaps the origins of our Crack Rackets podcast, I wanted to just do a Stefan Kozlov beat, talk about his results each and every week, make this a Kozlov-centric show. I was perhaps wisely turned down by my Crack Rackets partners, Dalton Thieneman and Daniel Westoff. Nevertheless, if you've been following the Challenger circuit closely over the past few weeks at has been all about the 23-year-old American here in North America. He won the Columbus Challenger title, makes the final in Vegas, wins another Challenger title this past weekend in Charlottesville. He knocks off J.J. Wolf in their third meeting in those three events. Kozlov now 2-1 and one against Wolf, and then follows that up with a straight-set victory over Alex Vukic in the final. I want to talk about what has allowed Kozlov to have this much success down the home stretch. Why I feel it's a real 
amount of success as well. Not just some fluke run, some you know sudden resurgence at the end of the season that we can write off heading into 2022. No, no, no. I want to make the case for why we should all be watching Stefan Kozlov moving forward. And then, of course, there are plenty of other results, right, that happened throughout the course of the weekend. Telling Greek Sport wins a record-setting seventh challenger. That's pretty awesome. Holger Rune wins his fourth challenger of the season, has all of the momentum on his side as he enters the next-gen finals. And then, you know, we had some American ITFs featuring plenty of college success, plenty of guys like Cannon Kingsley making a run to the final in Ithaca, Emma Navarro winning the title in Orlando. Want to talk about all of those things on today's show. It's actually going to be a two-mini-break Tuesday as we've got Tennis Point Tuesday coming up later today with Nate Walworth. uh, Walrath. Excuse me. I'll talk more about, you know, some broader Paris topics. We'll preview the next-gen finals, get into the latest and greatest products available at Tennis Point as well. But before I get into this show, I just want to remind all of you listeners that the reason we're able to do this day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you, because of the support we get from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. You'll also let them know we sent you there by using that promo code, and we are immensely appreciative for all of you that have already used it again. So grateful to our friends at Tennis Point. The least we can do, ask you to support them as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's talk Novak Djokovic, and I think some of you listeners know I try not to lead too frequently with big three conversations unless absolutely necessary, because at this point, what is there to add? in the analysis about Novak Djokovic's excellence on court. It's been 15 years of it. If you don't know about his ability to extend points, that extra shot, his ability to reach just another plane of physicality that we had never seen in men's tennis before, his ability to scrap his way out of corners, turn defense into offense, hit the backhand down the line, and find these ridiculous forehands uh, in corners with depth when he's completely on the stretch and on the slide, and you know he likes to work in the backhand. But did you know Perhaps we do have, uh, you know, again, a new data point about this version of Novak Djokovic. And I hesitate to make this comparison, but I think the obvious one is Michael Jordan, right? Because we saw Michael Jordan continue to evolve throughout his career, continue to redefine his game as he reached later stages of his career. I'm not saying we have reached Novak Djokovic servant volleyer, but we have reached Novak Djokovic far more aggressive with the plus one ball with the first serve, and we saw the success in that transition of his mentality in his game style to really go after that first ball, and I'm not saying he didn't do that early in his career, but in 2011, you know, in 2015, when you're, you know, for Novak Djokovic, 24 what, four and 28 years old, there was a degree of physicality he could get to comfortably, right? He could play 17 30-shot rallies in a row and not show an ounce of fatigue because, of course, that's what you can do when you're 24 to 28 years old in the prime of your career. At this stage, of course, he can still do that when he needs to, but what's been so impressive about the success Novak Djokovic has had this season is the success he's had as a server, and you look for him, that success continued here in Paris particularly on the first serve. And you look for Novak Djokovic in his four victories in Paris. He won 77%, 
and 79% of his first serve points. You look for Novak Djokovic in his career. He has averaged a 73.7 win percentage on first serve points. He's at 76.1% this season. That's the second highest number of his career. It's a testament to, again, the fact that at this stage, you need to create, you know, of his career, needs to create a few more free point chances for himself. And you look in a brilliant breakdown by my friend Gil Gross and his three, a tennis show partner, Amy Lundy, who, you know, talked about the difference in the rally lengths in this match. And for Novak Djokovic, what stood out, I don't want to say it was dominance, but his clear edge against Daniil Medvedev in those 0-5 to five shot rallies. Djokovic, I believe, wins 13 more 0-5 to five point shot rallies than Medvedev throughout the course of the match. That's the difference in this one in a match that's decided on the margins. You know, 4-6, 6-3, 6-3 for Novak Djokovic. And of course, you have to give so much credit to Daniil Medvedev because he's not... Well, I don't want to say he's not there in terms of... Well, I guess just the physicality. Let's focus on the physicality. He's almost reached that Djokovic plane, and I don't know if he's quite there yet in terms of doing it over three sets, over five sets in particular, the way Djokovic did at his absolute prime, but in terms of sniffing that Djokovician Nadal degree of physicality, Daniil Medvedev is there. If he wants to go into brick wall mode and not make an unforced error for an hour and a half in a match, he can do that. And in the first set, we saw that Daniil Medvedev show up on court, and of course, the blessing Daniil Medvedev also has is that he's six foot six and on an indoor hard court you know the statistics have suggested that he can serve along the lines of the Isners of the Ranich in terms of how frequently he's holding serve because again his ability to hit that serve and, and earn free points for himself and then follow that up with a plus one ball and you know Daniil Medvedev sneaky good feel I don't think it's even sneaky at this point he's just a good volleyer and you know he incorporated some serve and volley throughout the course of this match and he's able to go down the line cross court there's not a shot on a tennis court Daniil Medvedev is uncomfortable hitting except for maybe a standard forehand. We'll get back to that momentarily. But, you know, again, he did not make unforced errors in the first set of this match. And you look at the stats specifically, set number one for Daniil Medvedev. He, you know, uh, in terms of winners, unforced errors, eight winners, four unforced errors for Djokovic, 10 winners, but 16 unforced errors. Medvedev was in brick wall mode. He was pressuring Djokovic with every, you know, chance he had, absorbing, redirecting, going down the line. In particular, in his first set, his forehand was holding up extraordinarily well when Djokovic would try to test it with pace, when Djokovic would try to go, you know, down the line and change direction, get him to hit that forehand on the run. Medvedev was not making an, you know, unforced errors in the first set. You look for him again. When 60% of his first serve points, 60% of his second serve points, 3 of 5 at the net was just an efficient first set for Daniil Medvedev, the sort of tennis we've grown accustomed to from seeing uh, from the 2021 U.S. Open champ. But Djokovic stepped up his level the rest of the way, and in particular, it was both the aggression he started playing with on serve and also his willingness to move forward. And you look for Novak Djokovic, 25 of 33 at the net in this match. And of course, I'm not suggesting that he starts incorporating the serve and volley into everything he does. But that was a brilliant matchup adjustment 
given how the course of this match was going. And again, for Daniel Medvedev, four unforced errors in set one, 17 unforced errors in sets two and three. And just Medvedev started feeling some pressure because Djokovic began holding serve more easily. He ends up, you know, again, winning 79% of his first serve points for the match. Now it was nine of 29 on second serve points. And that's obviously a, a data point for us to note moving forward because for Novak Djokovic, if that first serve percentage isn't at 66% as it was today, uh, Medvedev's going to have opportunities to attack. And Medvedev's going to force Djokovic to suffer, force him to play those 15 to 20 shot rallies. And in the plus, you know, the shot, all the rallies that went nine shots or longer, I think it was Medvedev who had a nine-point advantage, and, you know, they played pretty evenly in those five-to-nine-shot rallies. But, again, for uh, Novak Djokovic, it was the efficiency he played with, and in particular in that third set— Medvedev's forehand broke down, and Djokovic recognized that. He continued to attack that forehand with pace. He continued to serve and volley whenever he'd hit the return, uh, the serve to that forehand wing and just, you know, again, attack with the open court. Uh, Djokovic volleyed extraordinarily well throughout the course of this match, and you look overall, given how far he was in the negatives that he finishes 35-31 and 31 after his first set performance— Djokovic locked in, and he found that higher plane where, again, he was willing to suffer in the longer rallies, but he was just more efficient with his shot selection. And again, you look for Novak Djokovic, he and Medvedev, the only guys top 10 in both hold and break percentage this season, but for Novak Djokovic, the hold percentage, 86.7, that's a percent above his career average. He's breaking 34.1% of the time, that's 1.9% above his career average, it's, it's crazy to suggest that Novak Djokovic is playing better tennis now than he was earlier in his career, but he's certainly playing more efficient tennis now than he was early in his career. And you look at the results for this season, 48-6 and six overall. What are we doing here, folks? You look at who the six losses were to. Dan Evans, Monte Carlo Clay, that one was funky. Karatsev, Belgrade, three sets. You look for Djokovic in that match. I believe he had like... 28 break points or something crazy like that. So again, those are the only two funky losses. The other one, three sets Nadal, Rome final. I don't think any of us have any issue with that. Three sets Zverev, Tokyo semifinals. Go watch the match, see how well Zverev played. No issues with that. Karina Busta, three sets bronze medal match. Honestly, whatever. Three set, you know, lost the U.S. Open final to Daniil Medvedev. At that point, Djokovic was just spent and, you know, it was very clear two months off between the end of the U.S. Open and playing here in Paris. And he said it at the beginning of the tournament. You know, I am here to secure the world number one ranking. He was rusty at the start, got better and better with every passing match, and then played his best tennis at the end. And, you know, I went on Monday Match Analysis, Gil Gross's YouTube show. If you haven't seen it, it's exceptional. Uh, obviously, I... I have said this before publicly. I'll say it again. I try not to listen to too many other tennis podcasts because I don't want to be stealing other people's takes. I do listen to Gills because I I just think he's excellent. He's a friend, obviously, and it's nice to have a critic, you know, someone who can review your content. He reviews ours, et cetera, et cetera. Point being, he made the excellent uh, question when we spoke on his show. Is this the best Novak Djokovic has played since Ra- the Rafa semifinal at Roland Garros? I, you know, I joked then. I said, well, what about Jack Draper set two? But 
I think the answer to that question is yes. You look at the streak of matches, Berrettini quarterfinals U.S. Open. After dropping that first set, he absolutely locked in. I thought the first set he played against Zverev in the Olympic semifinals is the best set of tennis I've seen from Djokovic since Roland Garros, but certainly that Paris match start to finish, I think the best he's played since that Roland Garros semifinal. And again, just to quickly run through the records, Novak Djokovic sets with his victory. He now has 37 Masters 1000 titles, surpasses Rafa for the the lead on his own. Rafa, of course, has 36. You look for Djokovic, six Paris titles, six Miami titles, six Indian Wells titles, five Five Rome titles, four Canada titles, four Shanghai titles, three Madrid titles, two Cincy titles, two uh, Monte Carlo titles. He's the only player to win all nine events, and he's won all nine events at least twice. He's won two Masters 1000 events six times. I mean, again, you combine slams and Masters, he's got the lead, one up on Nadal, though if you throw Olympics in there, Nadal then ties him once again, so I suppose that's an interesting wrinkle in the in the fight, but again, here are the records Novak Djokovic now holds with his performance, and by the way, he's collected at least one Masters 1000 titles in 13 different seasons. Here's the record for that, Nadal's done it in 15 different, which is just... I mean, it speaks to his dominance on clay. It's going to be 2055, and he's going to win Monte Carlo. Uh, Djokovic uh, has done it in 13. Federer's done it in 13. Agassi, 10. Murray, 7. Sampras, 7. Here's an interesting one. Zverev's already done it in 3. Medvedev's already done it in 3. They could approach that double-digit number. They could join the Nadal, Djokovic, Federer just streak, given how young they are in their careers and that they already have the titles. I mean, sure, don't count on Sinner, Alcaraz. They're going to do a lot of special things. But right now, those are the two active players in pursuit of a lot of the different records. I'm not saying they're going to surpass any of those records, but they're going to get up there in terms of their accomplishments. And let's be clear, Masters 1000 is a relatively new series in the broader men's tennis history. But it's just a joke. Djokovic, uh, excuse me, Djokovic, 13. I got criticized for my pronunciation, so I'm going to try a little bit better here. Djokovic, a th- uh, 13th season with a Masters 1000 title. Again, seven year-end world number ones, which he clinched at this performance. That's why he was here. That's why I'm wondering, do we see him at the year-end finals since he set out to do what he's already accomplished? Again, I'm going to steal from Gil once more. Gil goes, yeah, but he's never played it in Turin before. Won't he want to experience that event and just introduce himself to that crowd? That's a great take and likely perhaps why we do see him there. But seven year on number ones, that's first. 345 weeks at number one, that's first. Obviously, the 20 Grand Slam titles tied for first. Five year end finals titles. It hasn't won one since 2015. That's tied for second with Lendl and Sampras trailing Federer. He's also got 86 overall titles, fifth in the open era. I mean, we've said it here before, so it's not a new claim. I think he's the greatest men's player I've ever seen, and I think he's going to have every record at his under his wing by the time he's done with his career. So yeah, Djokovic is great. That's the takeaway. Hot take. But he's him. He's that guy that you're always thinking about, that everyone's thinking about in the back of their head. I mean... The one all of us are chasing. He's the standard setter. He is him. It's it's true. It's just Novak Djokovic. There's not much more to say. Guy is it's one of a kind. You're just you're not going to see another Novak Djokovic again. Of course, you look for Medvedev. The two and two win over Zverev in the semifinals. I think a bit misleading. I just Zverev. 
he just wasn't locked in, and you could tell there was a lot of tennis for Zverev, who had won what Vienna the week before, and or whatever event it was, and you know that's a bunch of matches for him consecutively. I'm not making excuses for Zverev, Medvedev kicked his derriere. Um, you know that match wasn't even competitive. Um, but I, I I'm not going to read too much into that one result. That's a late you know that's not an Australian Open semifinal is what I'm saying. Intensity from Alex Zverev, and so in terms of long term, does Medvedev have the matchup? I don't know why. I was going to do a mocking voice. I'm just, again, I'm not willing to read too much into that one result, but Medvedev continues to show it. You look at his results here this season, uh, again, on hard courts. Here is who, no, uh, excuse me, Daniil Medvedev has lost to on hard courts here this season. He's lost to Djokovic in Australia, the weird loss to the Deuce, Deuce Onlajevic in Rotterdam, RBA in Miami, PCB at the Olympics. Of course, PCB goes on to win the bronze medal. Rublev in Cincinnati, but he had won Canada the week before. Dimitrov, Indian Wells, Djokovic, Paris in three. And by the way, the loss to Dimitrov, three sets. The loss to Rublev, three sets. It's just like, yeah, he, again, I think there's a clear, distinct tier, and I made this case last week, but I'm going to keep harping on it. Medvedev, Zverev, Djokovic. They're your three definitive favorites entering the Australian Open. Not in that order, by the way. It goes Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev. Um, And it's clear why that's the order you have to go in. But they're on a tier of their own. They're the key three right now. Not the big three, the key three. The ones that matter most moving forward in men's tennis. And that's all due respect to Tsitsipas, who immediately jumps back into that conversation when we get back onto the clay. But they're the guys right now. And I just think they've clearly proven that here over the course of this season. Still, fantastic result, uh, obviously, throughout the course of pairs. Got to give a shout-out to Hubi Hurkacz, who's been excellent all season long. And you look for Hubi again, it's not a surprise. He's holding serve 90% of the time down the home stretch of the season, 86.1 for the season. That's a career high for him. You know, that's a top 10, top 15 sort of hold percentage number. That's what allows him to, you know, beat guys like Duckworth, Kofor, Paul, back to back to back. Guys he should be beating, but now he is beating consistently. And again, you look at him at the Masters on hard courts here this season— Hubi showed up at each and every one of those events. He goes semifinals in Paris, quarterfinals Indian Wells, round of 16 Cincy, quarterfinals Canada, title in Miami. 15-4 and four for Hubi Hurkacz at the Masters hardcourt events this year. Yeah, I think he's a dark horse to have some sneaky success at the year-end finals, but that's something we'll discuss later on today when Nate from Tennis Point joins us on the show, of course. Got to give a shout-out to Casper Ruud as well. Quarterfinaled Cincy, quarterfinaled Canada, quarterfinals here as well. He just is that good. Like, across surfaces. We were waiting for it. It was a sample size thing, not a game-style thing. He proves it again. You know, good wins for him over Sasha Bublik, Marcos Giron before getting knocked out by Zverev. And then, obviously, dream run for Hugo Gaston. Gets him into the next-gen finals. Quarterfinals here. Quarterfinal for the Duck. Quarterfinal for Fritz, who have come on so strong at the end of this season. Paris was—it had a proper dose of funkage, but as always, you know— there's only you know it's Paris over the past decade has been won by either I think it's you know there's only one number one seed who has won Paris over the past decade and that's Novak Djokovic and so it, it's you know the story of Paris Masters event is it's chaos unless Djokovic wants to play and then he wins the event but anyways that's where things stand and those again you talk about Novak Djokovic if he's going to continue to have this sort of success on the first serve and incorporate the serve and volley as the adjustment and just again make things a little bit easier for himself it becomes that much easier for him to sustain this 
I don't is, is it a prime? Like, I don't even know how to define where he's at at this stage of career to sustain this level um, moving forward. But again, that is your action over in Paris. Let's move on now to the action we had in Charlottesville. Stefan Kozlov. I just... I can't emphasize enough how impressed I was by his performance on his way to the title. And it's a theme we've seen emerge for Stefan Kozlov over these last few weeks. He was only broken five times in five matches. And yeah, it's indoor hardcore tennis. But if you have watched Stefan Kozlov over the years, you know the serve is what he struggled with most. That was why, despite, you know, being as good from the baseline and you know he was Medvedev before Medvedev with all of the creativity the slices and the shots from the ridiculous angles and just you know again the feel around the net unconventional doesn't seem overwhelmingly powerful but just always effective always makes opponents uncomfortable of course you know, he didn't grow to 6'6", so it was the Medvedev before Medvedev at the junior level, at the challenger level. But then, you know, a combination of injuries and stagnation left Stefan Kozlov a bit behind the peer group he was at the front of for so long. The guys like Fritz, Paul, Opelka, you know, Michael Moe, and obviously Tommy Paul, and um, Francis Tiafo, who, you know, those two, to quote The Last Kingdom, shout out Uhtred, you know, uh, Kozlov and Tiafo are bonded forever for American tennis fans. The story of both of them, the Orange Bowl match they played, the Kalamazoo match they played, their ascending success on the challenger level in 2014, 15, 16 together. Their story is, you know, again, forever linked, and Kozlov had fallen behind that group, but you look for him now, 35-14 and 14 here in 2021. He wins the Columbus Challenger, finals in Las Vegas, wins Charlottesville, you know, his only loss in those three to J.J. Wolf, who he beats twice during that run as well, including uh, a 6-1, 6-7, 6-love over Wolf in the semifinals of Charlottesville. The difference right now for Stefan Kozlov is how well he's holding serve, and he's holding serve 75 one percent of the time this season but you look for him over the course of the past two months he's holding serve 84 percent of the time if Stefan Kozlov's going to hold serve 84 percent of the time which is above the average of the top 25 you know of, of the top 50 players excuse me on the men's tour and I know you got to adjust for the challenger level but if he's going to hold serve even an 80 percent clip He's breaking serve 34% of the time, and breaking serve and the return of serve has never been an issue for Stefan Kozlov, whose feel on the backhand is as good as you're going to find. In the forehand, you know, again, he's played around with the swing, but he finally seems to be comfortable. It's no longer as big of a backswing as it used to be, and, you know, he doesn't play the slice off of that forehand wing as frequently as he used to either, and just the serve. The serve, the serve, the serve. I cannot emphasize this enough. He's winning 74% of his first serve points over the past few months. That's just not Stefan Kozlov tennis, and there's pop on it, and he's not playing with the motion as much as he used to early in his career. And just, you know, again, against Alex Vukic, his ability to keep Vukic honest on that ad side return by finding the tee and just peppering it, he, you know, hit multiple aces down the tee during the course of the match. And then, you know, obviously he's always had the kick serve at his disposal. So he was able to hit kick, find that Vukic backhand and his ability to absorb the inside out Vukic forehand, which he hit so overwhelmingly with pace. Ditto, by the way, for JJ Wolf, his ability to uh, absorb both of their forehands, find the backhand corners, use his angles, his slice to make them hit from uncomfortable launch points on the baseline. It was just... Kozlov's back. Like, he really is back, and it's a breath of fresh air because if you have not watched him play, there's a variety. And just, 
a thrill to the Kozlov game. And yeah, I'm biased because I've been following him now for about a decade, you know, since he was 13 years old. And I joke this all the time, greatest 12-year-old in tennis history. Um, He's better now. Like This is not the same Stefan Kozlov. It's not a return to 2014, 15, 16 Stefan Kozlov form. This is a better Stefan Kozlov. A, he's fitter. There's not a doubt in my mind. And anticipation skills and an exceptional first step, a guy who was born moving on a tennis court, that's always been easy for him, but he just is fitter. He looks stronger. He looks thinner. Again, and I know those are superficial categories there, but it's just a different Stefan Kozlov. The shot selection is more precise. It's more disciplined, and that's another word. Discipline was not always something you'd associate with Stefan Kozlov because he was a jack-of-all-trades, and a guy who can do a lot of things is a guy who doesn't know exactly what to do best in the biggest moments, and that was a problem Stefan Kozlov struggled with, but he's not anymore, like, or at least over these past few months, he's not. There's a decisiveness and a freeness with which he's playing. It's absolutely delightful, and you look for him with this push. He's back in the top 200, number 188 entering the week. You look for him in the points race in terms of, again, points accumulated here on the season. Stefan Kozlov now, I mean, this is as high as he's been probably since what? I don't know, 2017, 2018. He's number 149 in the points race. I mean, obviously, you know, he's a little bit lower than that in the rankings right now, but he's got nothing to defend at the start of next season. He qualified in Acapulco, made round of 16, uh, 32 in March, excuse me, before losing to Nori. He qualified for the Little Rock Challenger, lost first round. That's all, and you know, won one round at a Naples 25K. That's all he has to defend until May. He has the Australian Open wildcard challenge lead. He's going to get into whatever challengers he wants with a top 200 ranking. Stefan Kozlov has positioned himself for a push into the top 100, folks. And obviously, you can hear the excitement in my voice. It's just a reminder of how deep this class of American talent is because, you know, J.J. Wolf's another 98er. 40, what, 8 and 13 now or something crazy like that in challenger matches since the start of 2019? You know that you see the serve. You see the forehand. They're ATP weapons. He's a guy who belongs in the top 100. Michael Moe has been in the top 100. Ernesto Escobedo has been in the top 100. There's just, you know, I still think we have a Blumberg push in us. I still think Alex Kovacevic can make a push as well. It's the depth right now in American men's tennis that has me so excited. And obviously Jack Sock's not in the top 100 right now. And, you know, it's just... It's going to be a fun decade. That's all I have to say. It's going to be a fun decade, especially if Kozlov can re-enter the equation because I'm telling you, his peers are Alex Virev and Andre Rublev and Taylor Fritz and Tommy Paul and all of the best in Stefano Tsitsipas, who he beat in a junior Orange Bowl final. Those are the guys he grew up measuring himself against, and obviously that creates ridiculous amounts of burdens, and you have to ask how the burden of that pressure affect him early on in his career. It's a legitimate question to ask, but... Oh, man. Uh, Obviously, as you can hear, I am excited to see this return of Stefan Kozlov because men's tennis is a better place when Kozlov is firing on all cylinders. All of that said, shout out to the former University of Illinois All-American Alex Vukic. Vuki, 30-24 now in his last 52, but you look for him down the home stretch of this season. Semifinals carry, semifinals Columbus, qualified and won around at Indian Wells. Finals now here in Charlottesville. He's up to a new career high of number 172, and given his struggles at the beginning of the season, he lost five of his first six matches. You know, doesn't have much to defend till the start of April. Another guy who can absolutely make a push 
push towards the top 100 with a strong performance at at the Australian Open qualifying. And of course, JJ Wolf back up to number 152, Vegas Challenger title, Columbus Challenger semifinal, Charlottesville Challenger semifinal. His only losses are to the guy who won the event in Columbus and Charlottesville. He's back. He's healthy. He's going to make another push towards the top 100. Another guy, given his injury, just doesn't have much to defend at the start of next season. So those are three guys, college ties, Americans, for us to be excited about here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, again, you probably already heard Damian and Jakob Bobros, Challenger Recap Podcast. They went into this in in depth. Just got to give a shout out to Talent Greek Sport. Earns his seventh Challenger title of the season. That's a record-setting season at the Challenger level. So shout out to Greek Spore. Shout out to Holger Rune as well. Enters the uh, ATP Next Gen event with loads of momentum on his side. A fourth Challenger title of his career. Youngest to win an indoor Challenger, or a hardcore Challenger, excuse me, since uh, Yannick Sinner. He's 67th now. Is Holger Rune in the points race? You look for Holger Rune now, I believe, ranked number 106 in the live ranking. 18 years old, folks. He and Elkarez, I think, born like a month apart. They're both ready to be top 100 players. Rune was exceptional. And again, I don't think that's a breaking news development uh, to any of you. But of course, that's Holger Rune right now. Uh, that's uh, Eric, excuse me, that's another one of your challenger winners last week. Of course, your last challenger titles went to Daniel Masur, who knocked out former UCLA All-American Maxime Cressy in the final in Germany. You also had the final over in Ecuador where Alejandro Tabilo ends up earning the title over Jesper De Jong. That was your challenger action. But of course, all of you are already know to learn more about all the action happening on the ATP Challenger Tour week in, week out. Just go check out our Monday GSPs recapping all the action with Damian Kust and Jakob Bobro. Last but certainly not least, quickly, shout out to Emma Navarro. Does she go back to college? I don't know. She's had a ton of pro success here over the course of the fall, including a 25K title victory for her this past week in Orlando. You look for Emma Navarro, maybe not quite at the Rinky Hijikata levels. What's Rinky now? Like 40 and 12 or something crazy here over the course of the summer. But you look for Emma Navarro, the run she's had since winning the NCAA tournament in May. The rising Virginia sophomore just made quarterfinals at the 60K in Berkeley a few weeks ago. Quarterfinals for her at the 25K in Fort Worth. Quarterfinals for her at the 125K in Charleston. 60K quarterfinals uh, at a couple of other locations as well. She's up to number 284 in the live rankings. It's right on the border of when you go, when you don't go. So that's a storyline to watch, of course. Your men's ITF events. Shout out to Charlie Broom, friend of the program here. Former Dartmouth-Baylor standout makes the semifinals falling to for, I believe, UNCW standout Henry Patton. Patton ultimately winning the title, excuse me, over former Florida Gator All-American college number one, Alfredo Perez. Perez, a three-set win over former UCLA All-American Keegan Smith in the semifinals. Great to see Keegan healthy and playing again. And then, of course, Shout out to our guy, Cannon Kingsley, reaches the final of the Ithaca 15K, knocks off top seed Felix Corwin, straight sets in the semis, falls to number six seed Luke Johnson, 7-6 in the third set, heck of a performance, heck of a fight, Uh, just unfortunately, that's as close as you get, so I think he's going to get over the finish line. Of course, Futures winner a few weeks ago, Vassal Kirkov makes the semifinals, keep an eye on Kirkov, again, 
very, very talented, former 18th Kalamazoo finalist, was one of those guys in the USTA circles. Just keep an eye on him. A lot of pedigree, a lot of talent. I'm still intrigued. But that's your recap of last week's action. Of course, we'll get into it all again later on today with Nate Walrith of Tennis Point. Hopefully, you all join us for a Tennis Point Tuesday. But, of course, if you've missed any of our content, you can catch up on it all on our website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at CrackRackets. You want to message me directly, I am at GreatShotPod. A shout-out, as always, to our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of any job they do day in, day out. Shout-out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for our super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 